0: You're listening to a message from Kaleo Phoenix, a church plant in downtown Phoenix that creates space for people to practice the ways of Jesus together. Genesis 1, 27. So God created mankind in his own image. In his image, God created them. Man and female, he created them. Skip a few verses. God saw all that he had made. And it was very good. Jesus, we come to you with that word on our hearts tonight. Whereas we cannot fully grasp the implications of what it means to be created in your likeness, God, we don't neglect the weight of that, that that has in this room. God, may your presence in this space, your spirit, move in a way that is undeniable, in our own hearts and souls and beings. As we look to you, the crucified Christ who saves us, we pray this in your name, amen. Well, welcome to Kaleo. We are so glad that you are here yet again. We are getting into these new rhythms. A lot of schools have started back up. It's still really extremely hot with the humidity, but we still like the rain and some cloud coverage. So that's okay. It's not all bad. And we only got, what, two and a half, three more months to go? We can do this. We got got this. I think so. (laughs) Call me and encourage me this week sometime. But we're getting into these new rhythms, and this summer, we have taken a pause on our typical way in which we preach, which is through the lectionary, where we go through the church calendar and we go through the seasons, which we believe that is very helpful for us to understand God's story as a whole, as it works together to tell us what God looks like and what Christ has done for us and what we, in response to that, are to do. But this summer, we've decided to bring in a few guest teachers from around the community next or in a few weeks we're going to have another one who's going to lead us through uh, some mindfulness prayer which we're very excited about but we have been going through these windows, these beautiful windows in this space that we occupy. And we've allowed these windows to preach to us, yes, through their beauty and their symbolism and their art, but also the scripture and the word of God that accompanies and has an overarching pool on these windows. So we are in week two of this window right here over your right shoulder, second from the front, the crucifixion of Jesus. So last week was a bit rough as we sat in the shame of the cross. We didn't mince words. If you'd like to go back, you sure can. Kaleophx.com and you can listen. If you do that 30 minutes, you can do it. It'll be great. If you want to sit in the shame of the cross during this week, I invite you to do so. But what I'm going to do really quick is I'm just going to give a quick recap of it, which I'm sure is probably going to be more concise and moving than the actual 30-minute sermon. So anyways... What happened on the cross has been talked about and debated about for all a millennia. Since Jesus died on the cross that Friday, something happened in which nothing would remain the same. The cross is the most seen image in human history as it decorates churches and house walls and bracelets and necklaces and shirts and skin and all of the things that you can imagine putting a cross on. They are there. Now we see the beauty in the cross. That's undeniable. As we are Christians, we say our salvation comes from Christ's action on the cross as he willingly gives himself up on our behalf. And we allow that beauty and we sing about that beauty and we recognize that that is the event in Christian history that everything changed. But the reality of the cross is its implications come from where it derived from deep humiliation, shame, and disgust. Jesus stripped down, beaten, hanging naked at eye level for people to pass by and to mock. That's what Rome did to the king who was coming to preach another way. So where were the disciples when this happened? When Jesus was going through his darkest night of the human soul, even, and the divine soul at that, where were his disciples? Well, they fled. One had betrayed him. One had denied him three times, cursing as he did so. And the other one's hid in a locked room, scared, scared, Their lives. And it was a really justifiable reason for them to be scared. There was a bounty on their head. The mob could kill them at any moment as well. Yes, they fled the cross. In fact, the cross, in its own right, is meant to push a rational human being from its ugliness and its sight. A good Roman citizen wasn't even supposed to utter the word crux, which is where we get the word cross, because it was not good for a noble tongue or a tongue of manners to even speak of such things, let alone be there while your friend is hanging on one. Deep shame they are hiding. And as they are hiding, I like to think back to the brothers Mark and John, as they are hiding and they are thinking about what is gone, James and John, sorry, Mark's not, he's just a book of the Bible. I knew it as soon as I said it. And I was like, let's find this verse and let the Bible correct me, which it did. So I'm thinking about them being in this room and scared for their lives, and you know, they're talking about it. They have heard the things. They know what a crucifixion looks like. They are an oppressed, occupied people that are not Roman, so crucifixion is reserved for them, for the rebellious Jewish people who continuously talk about this new kingdom, this kingdom of David being restored. Rome doesn't have time for that, so they stamp it out quickly. The disciples have seen a crucifixion or two in their lives. Now the Messiah that they have followed for for three years has been crucified. And while they did not watch, they knew exactly what it was he was going through. The shame and the disappointment. And you know that they're in this room and they are second and third and fourth guessing all the decisions that they had made when they dropped their nets and started following this teacher around the area of Galilee. Yes, they had seen some miraculous things. They had heard some dynamic preaching. They had been part of some miracles themselves. They've seen demons cast out, the sight restored, ears opened, leprosy cleaned. But it still wasn't enough. And they hid and it was over. Now I see them going back to a story that happened in Matthew 20 just before the triumphal entry when Jesus made his way into Jerusalem, which ultimately led to him being crucified outside its gates. Verse 20 of chapter 20 in Matthew. Then the mother of Zebedee's sons came to Jesus and her sons. Kneeling down, she asked a favor of him. So they're traveling, they're walking. Jesus is lounging, he's sitting somewhere. And so the mother of these two men, boys, if you will, they're adolescents, their frontal lobes are not fully developed, which is very interesting. Jesus choosing them, showing that it doesn't matter what we can do or think, he just picks the people and they go, you know? But she comes and she looks at Jesus, probably around his same age, and she looks him in the eyes and says, hey, can I ask you a favor? This is a bold request he says, what is it that you want? She said, grant me that one of these two sons of mine may sit at your right and at the other side of your left in your kingdom. You hear that request? Jesus has talked kingdom. He's preached kingdom. He's talked about heaven and earth, thy kingdom come. And so, These two on mommy's behest have boldly-ish come to Jesus with a special request. And this is not a request that is light or they think they're just going to be given this place of status. But this is a place that is also earned because to proclaim the Messiah is to be willing to take up a sword and fight for those places. They were not weak or just asking for entitlements here. They were willing to pick up the sword to sit and earn those places. And Jesus says to her, you don't know what you are asking. Jesus said to them, can you drink the cup I'm going to drink? We can, they answered, That shows the lack of their frontal lobes being developed, which is part of the thing that controls our impulses. And they put a really quick response impulsively to Jesus, saying, thing we can in the sheepish boyish tone. Jesus said to them, you will indeed drink from my cup, but to sit at my right and left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those whom God had been prepared by my father. When the 10 heard about this, they were indignant with the two brothers. Let's think about this for a second. These are actual real people. They're real friends. They're following a real rabbi. They hear of what the mom went and said, and you know they got flacked for their mom having to be the one that asked, and they are up Set indignant, irate, mad that they would have such a, a boldness and disregard to the rest of them that they would position and posture themselves to be above and elevated of the rest. And you know that their mother was opportunist here, just trying to get before Peter and Andrew who wanted to be on the right and left. And so there's some politicking going on and they ask for the status place. And they are upset when politics and power and positioning and bureaucracy comes about. That makes a lot of people timid and sensitive and upset and indignant. Jesus called them all together as a good teacher seeing the ramblings and the stirrings and the tensions and the animosity and maybe the name calling and almost fisticuffs, you know, going on in this group of 10. He calls them all together. And in a very Jesus way, he says, You know, the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you, you must become yourself a servant. And whoever wants to be first among you, your slave, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. It was this story, I believe, that James and John had played back in their head as their teacher was now, as he had said, crucified. Are we willing to drink this cup? Now we sat in the shame of the cross and while there are a lot of atonement theories, which atonement just means basically theology of salvation, what does it mean in which we are saved, what actually happened on the cross and there's different theories like Christus Victor theory, which I'm a big fan of, which is Jesus won a victory, which we sing about on the cross, there's substitutionary atonement theories, which those belong in the scope of things where Jesus took on the price that sin costs. But Jesus on the cross changed something. On the cross, all of evil and its forces came together as one in a coalition doing the work of the Satan, the ruler of the world, to crush and to push down and to thwart this messianic promise of this new kingdom. On the cross, all of evil came together and on the cross, evil was destroyed Now we still have the remnant of evil as we look out in the world and as we accidentally stumble across the news, we hear of evil time and time again and we see the rulers lording it over them. And we see the posturing and positioning to get to that next step. And we see the remnant happening time and time again in our lives. But we see on this side of the cross that even though it still is here and it still belongs in this world, it is not the ruler any longer of this world. That stronghold has been broken. And on the cross our sins are forgiven. Can you drink this cup that I am to drink? Now, I I grew up in a very salvation-heavy Baptist church in Texas, which most of them are. It's not a unique thing. Largest denomination in the country, I myself, am still a Baptist, believe it or not, take that or leave it, have coffee and talk about it with me. I don't care, we can process that, all the deconstruction all that fun stuff, but re- reclaim it. But I grew up in this, this heavy emphasis on the eternal aspect of your salvation. And now I, I think if I ask you or took a poll, how many of you were presented salvation or the salvation story in a similar manner? In fact, actually, raise your hand if you've been given a presentation of the gospel with heaven as the end goal. Raise your hand. Okay, everybody in here, except for the introverts and shy ones, which Erica said we weren't gonna call on you again, and you didn't have to, it's fine. But there's this heavy emphasis on the eternal aspect of our salvation. Where are you gonna go when you die? You pass these signs, typically driving in the south, and there's clouds on this side, you know, by Waco. There's, there's fire on this side, and it says, where are you going when you die? Where are you guys going when you die? Where are you gals going when you die? It's the heavy emphasis Ellen, will you hand me my water? It's the heavy emphasis. I'm getting parched thinking about hell. (laughs) Get that fire, that heat. I was scared. I was so scared of hell. One of my biggest fears, which is pretty dark as a kid was that I was going to see the devil. Yeah, that's, that's some heavy stuff, but I rededicated my life like 30 times, like in one summer camp even, because I did not want to go there. All right. I mean, I might be like getting really niche here, but how many of you are familiar with the play around Halloween time called Heaven's Gates, Hell's Flames? All right, so not as many people. My brother's one of them. But every time it's like the Christian version of the haunted house, but way scarier because it's not a clown mask and a chainsaw. It's typically a depiction of like a teens getting in a car wreck and some going to hell and some going to heaven. And you walk through and you have the strobe lights and the fake fire going. And it's like gnarly, like bad acting, but still pretty messed up. Where like this guy's like acting like he's eating his finger because he's so hungry. And I'm like, I want to get out out of here and then you go to the heaven side and they're playing like Metallica or not Metallica is the hell side. For some people that would be heaven, but there's like, there's like Toby Mac in heaven and, and you're walking through and it's like, doesn't actually look fun. And you're like, actually hell was a little bit, at least the volume was up there. But at the end, there's a presentation. Okay, now seeing this just tiny glimpse, where would you like to go when you die? If you'd like to go to heaven, here's the prayer for your salvation. And what happens and what has happened throughout our, our generation and the ones before us in the American Christian culture is that that cross, the cross that we're looking at, had boiled all the way down to a destination for when you die. In the New Testament books, you find very little information about salvation that way. The cross is the central focus. And Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 1, 17, for Christ didn't send me to baptize, but to preach the good news and not with clever speech for fear that the cross would lose its power. There's power in the cross. When I first came to you, dear brothers and sisters, I didn't use lofty words or impressive wisdom to tell you God's secret plan, for I decided that while I was with you, I would forget everything except Jesus Christ, the one crucified. Galatians 2.20, my old self has been crucified with Christ. It is I no longer who live, but Christ who lives in me. So I live in this earthly body by trusting in the son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Romans 6, 6 through 11. Since we have been united with him in his death, we will also be raised to life as he was. We know that our old sinful selves were crucified with Christ so that in sin might lose power over our lives. We are no longer slaves to sin, as we sung earlier, for when we died with Christ, we were set free from the power of sin. Something happened on the cross. Sin, we, and since we died with Christ, we know we will also live with him. You hear that? We will live with him. That verb is in the present tense. We will live with him. Are you willing to drink the cup that I am going to drink? We're losing some light here as we get dark into the darkness of the gospel. But bear with me because this is the heart of our Christian profession that the writers, the ones who drink this cup, which they indeed do drink this cup, have these implications that thwart everything that they expected about what a Messiah was supposed to do for Israel. And instead, as N.T. Wright says, the hope of Israel expressed variously in the Torah, prophets, and Psalms was not a rescue operation that would snatch Israel or humans or the faithful from the world, but for the rescue operations that would be for the world. An operation through which redeemed humans would play once more the role in which they were designed. It was the hope for a renewed world in which justice and mercy would reign forever. Jesus was explaining not that this hope would be abandoned in favor of saved souls going to heaven, but that this hope or new creation had been fulfilled in a shockingly unexpected way. The revolution had taken place by that evening on that Friday, even though his followers did not know it yet. A rescue operation for the world. Second Corinthians five nineteen. Heaven and earth were brought together, creating the cosmic new temple. God was reconciling the world to himself in the Messiah. On the cross, there's implications for the people who profess the cross, and those implications are not our packing our suitcases and standing at the eternal terminal, waiting for our time to punch that ticket for that eternal salvation for us to experience, but for us to put on this image-bearingness of God, the creator himself, to be ambassadors of the kingdom, what is known as royal priesthood, reflecting the imago day, reflecting the image of God To the world while offering praises back. And that has real implications for humanity. As we look at the crucified Christ, we are left with the question are we willing to drink the cup? I want us to sit with that for a few moments. The band's gonna come up here and bring some Holy Spirit with them. Something happened that changed everything on the cross. The crucified Christ, the God who put on the flesh and condescended himself, all the way in solidarity with the suffering of humanity that ultimately took him to the most shameful part in human history, and that was hanging from a tree, naked and beaten and humiliated. That's our God, that's our story, that's the Christian faith that's a radical one and is one that is polarizing, that makes you wanna look away and run away. But then, and only then, does something happen. It is when we meet Jesus on the cross that we are invited in to this new way of living, this new kingdom in which the image that we were originally created with and is very good is then restored in such a way that we become change agents of the thing that changed in the world around us, and that is not an easy or fun message to preach. In fact, it comes with this cup that we have no idea what we are asking, we have no idea what it is we are drinking. But following that story where James and John are now with the resurrected Christ, They're looking back on it. It's like when you know the end of a shocking ending of a movie like The Sixth Sense, you know, when Bruce Willis was dead the whole time. Spoiler alert. I should have said that first. You had time to see the movie. Or when Edward Norton Jr. reveals that Brad Pitt is just a dissociative projected version of uh, himself with this nihilistic view of what it looks like to be in Fight Club. And then you go back and you watch it and you're like, oh yeah, oh yeah, oh yeah. I see Jesus talking to his friends and I think that What happens is they go back to all these experiences that they themselves wrote down on this side of the cross. And they go back and they write for us to engage with it, for us to look at and say, oh yeah, oh yeah. Even though it was so scandalous and earth shattering and groundbreaking and mind bending this gospel message that Jesus preached. May we not become complacent through overfamiliarity, but something is required of us. Yes, we don't earn it. It's passively received by us, but in that reception something happens in the soul. And the cross of Christ becomes our crosses as well. The descent and the shame looks like failure to a lot of people, but is full of fruit. That's the message of Jesus. Throughout Matthew, the writer constantly portrays themselves as he was one eyewitness account as being basically blind to the actual workings of the kingdom before the cross and the resurrection happened. And immediately following this story, Jesus has another interaction. I want to read it for us to reflect upon as we go into song and worshiping as priest back up to the image in which we were created. This is immediately following this request where Jesus brings them together and corrects them and says, hey, listen, you got to be a servant. You got to be the least of them in order to be the greatest among them. And they're just not seeing it. They're not seeing it. As they were leaving Jericho, a large crowd followed them. There were two blind men sitting by the roadside. When they had heard that Jesus was passing by, they shouted, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. The crowd sternly ordered them, be quiet. But they shouted even more loudly, have mercy on us, Lord, son of David. Jesus stood still and called them, saying, what do you want for me? What do you want for me to do? They said to him, Lord, let our eyes be opened and moved with compassion. Jesus touched their eyes. Immediately, they regained their sight, and they followed. Their eyes were open. The new humanity, the Imago Dei, comes with a set of new eyes. And while we get drowned out and blinded by the culture in which we live and the polarization of the politics and the injustices, the things that we see, the past experiences and the betrayals and all of the things that we've dealt with, the cross of Christ is here to touch you on your eyes so that you may see and ask yourself the question, am I willing to drink from this cup? If you say yes, Jesus goes further to show us what to do. As they enter into Jerusalem and he's called out to be a king, they go into an upper room, they pass by the water basin and the greatest among them, their teacher reaches into the bowl and he grabs a towel and he gets on his knees and he washes dirty feet. So a crucified humanity is given two things, a cup and a towel. Jesus, God, we are beyond blessed to even just be here to know that you drank this cup, God, that none of us would be willing to drink, that we would have fled in hidden rooms ourselves. God, that you showed us what you look like and what we look like. God, you showed us how to truly be human. So God, as we go into our lives, may this not just be a moment in time, but this fermenting process of the implications of our own salvation affecting this world as heaven meets earth, God. As we know That you love us, that you've done it for us, and that you look on us even in this room and community right now and you say it is very good. What can wash away my sin nothing, nothing but, but the blood, blood of jesus. jesus and what can make me whole again nothing, nothing but the blood resources or information about Kaleo. Please visit our website at KaleoPHX.com or follow us on social media. If this episode has been helpful to you, let us know or share it with someone you know.